Chapter 13 of Railstone Luck by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 On Such a Night as This. It had been one of those dull, weepy days when a sullen drizzle clouded sky and earth. In consequence, the walls and floors of Pirate's Haven seemed to exude chill. Rupert built a fire in the hall fireplace, but none of the family could say that it was a successful one. It made a nice show of leaping flame accompanied by fancy lighting effects, but gave forth absolutely no heat. Well, the boy started guiltily and thrust his notebook under the couch cushion as Charity came in. Tiny drops of rain were strung along the hairs which had blown free of a rain cape hood like steel beads along a golden wire. Yes, don't come here expecting to get warm, he warned her bitterly. We are very willing, but the fire is weak. Looks pretty, doesn't it? He kicked at a charred end on the hearth. Well, that's all it's good for. Val, what sort of a mess have you and Jeems jumped into? She asked as she handed him her dripping cape. Oh, just a general sort of mess, he answered lightly. Jeems had callers who forgot their manners. So Ricky and I breezed in and brought the party to a sudden end. As I can see by your black eye, she commented. But what has Jeems been up to? Val was suddenly very busy holding her cape before that mockery of a blaze. Why don't you ask him that? Because I'm asking you. Rupert came over last night and sat on my gallery making very roundabout inquiries concerning Jeems. I pried out of him the details of your swamp battle. But I want to know now just what Jeems has been doing. Your brother is so vague. Rupert has the gift of being exasperatingly uncommunicative, his brother told her. The story, so far as I know, is short and simple. Jeems knows a secret way into this house. In addition, his grandfather told him that the fortune of the house of Jeems is concealed here, having been very hazy in his description of the nature of said fortune. Consequently, Granson has been playing haunt up and down our halls trying to find it. His story is as full of holes as a sieve, but somehow one can't help believing it. He has explained that he has a secret of the outside entrance only, and not the one opening from the inside. In the meantime, he is in bed, guarded from intrusion by Ricky and Lucy with the same care as if he were the crown jewels. So matters rest at present. Neatly put, she dropped down on the couch. By the way, do you realize that you have ruined your face for my uses? Val fingered the crisscrossing tape on his cheek. This is only temporary. I certainly hope so. That must have been some battle. One of our better efforts, he coughed in mock modesty. Ricky saved the day with alarms and excursions without. Rupert probably told you that. Yes, he can be persuaded to talk at times. Is he always so silent? Nowadays, yes, he answered slowly. But when we were younger, you know. Val turned toward her suddenly, his brown face serious to a degree. It isn't fair to separate the members of a family, to put one here and one there and the third somewhere else. I was twelve when father died, and Ricky was eleven. They sent her off to great aunt Rogers because Uncle Fleming, who took me, didn't care for a girl. And Rupert? Rupert? Well, he was grown. He could arrange his own life, so he just went away. We got a letter now and then, or a postcard. There was money enough to send us to expensive schools and dress us well, it was two years before I really saw Ricky again. You can't call short visits on Sunday afternoons seeing anyone. Then Uncle Fleming died, and I was simply parked at Great Aunt Rogers. She, 
Val was remembering things, a bitter look about his mouth. Didn't care for boys. In September, I was sent to a military academy. I needed discipline, it seemed. And Ricky was sent to miss somebody's on the Hudson. Rupert was in China then. I got a letter from him that fall. He was about to join some expedition heading into the Gobi. Ricky came down to the Christmas hop at the academy. Then Aunt Rogers took her abroad. She went to school in Switzerland a year. I passed from school to summer camp and then back to school. Ricky sent me some carvings for Christmas. They arrived three days late. He stared up at the stone mantel. Kids feel things a lot more than they're given credit for. Ricky sent me a letter with some tear stains between the lines when Aunt Rogers decided to stay another year. And that was the year I earned the reputation of being a hard case. Then Ricky cabled me that she was coming home. I walked out of school the same morning. I didn't even tell anyone where I was going. Because I had money enough, I thought I would fly. And that, dear lady, is the end of this very sad tale. He grinned one-sidedly down at her. It was then that, that I was smashed up. Yes, and Rupert came home without warning to find things very messy. I was in the hospital when I should have been in some corrective institution, as Aunt Rogers so often told me during those days. Ricky was also in disgrace for speaking her mind, as she does now and then. To make it even more interesting, our guardian had been amusing himself by buying oil stock with our capital. Unfortunately, oil did not exist in the wells we owned. Yes, Rupert had every right to be anything but pleased with the affairs of the railstones. He swept us off here, where we are still under observation, I believe. Then you don't like it here? Like it, madam? Like is a very pallid word. What if you were offered everything you ever wished for, all tied up in pink ribbons and laid at your doorstep? What would your reaction be? So, she was staring into the fire. That's the way of it. Yes, or it would be if... He stooped to reach for another piece of wood. The fire was threatening to die again. What is the flaw in the masterpiece? She asked quietly. Rupert. He's changed. In the old days he was one of us. Now he's a stranger. We are amusing to have around, someone to look after. But I have a feeling that to him we don't really exist. We aren't real. Val floundered, trying to express that strange, walled-off emotion which so often held him in his grown-up brother's presence. Things like this blue-beard chamber of his, that isn't like the Rupert we knew. Did you ever think that he might be shy too? She asked. He left two children and came home to find two distrustful adults. Give him his chance. Charity! Ricky ran lightly downstairs. Why didn't Val tell me you had come? I just dropped in to inquire concerning your patient. He's better tempered than Val, declared Ricky shamelessly. You'll stay to dinner, of course. We're having some sort of crab dish that Lucy seems to think her best effort. Rupert will be back by then, I'm sure. He's out somewhere with Sam. There's been some trouble about trespassers on the swamp lands. Goodness, won't this rain ever stop? As if in answer to her question, there came a great gust of wind and rain against the door, a blast which shook the oak, thick and solid as it was. And then came the thunder of the knocker which Letty Lou had polished into shining life only the day before. Val opened the door to find Mr. Creighton and Mr. Holmes huddled on the mat. They came in with an eagerness which was only surpassed by Satan, wet and displaying cold anger towards his mistress, 
whom he passed with a disdainful flirt of his tail as he headed for that deceptive fire. "'You again,' observed Charity resignedly, as Sam too was summoned and sent away again, draped with wet coats and drenched hats. "'Man,' Holmes argued with Satan for the possession of the hearthstone, "'when it rains in this country it rains. A branch of a creek down there is almost over the road.' "'Bayou, not creek,' corrected Charity acidly. Lately she had shown a marked preference for Holmes' absence rather than his company. "'I stand corrected,' he laughed, "'a branch of a bayou.' "'If you found it so unpleasant, why did you?' began Charity. And then she flushed as if she had suddenly realized that that speech was too rude even for her recent attitude. "'Why did we come?' Holmes' crooked eyebrow slid upward as his face registered mock reproof. "'My, my, what a warm welcome, my dear!' He shook his head, and Charity laughed in spite of herself. "'Don't mind my bearishness,' she made half-apology. "'You know what pleasant moods I fall into while working. And this rain is depressing.' But Miss Bigelow is right. Creighton smiled his rare, shy smile. Brusque and impatient as he was when on business bent, he was awkwardly uncomfortable in ordinary company. The man, Val sometimes thought privately, lived, ate, slept, books. Save when they were the subject of conversation, he was as out of his element as a coal miner at the ballet. We should explain the reason for this, this rather abrupt call. He fingered his briefcase, which he still clutched nervously. Down to business already. Holmes seated himself on the arm of Ricky's chair. Very well. Out with it. Creighton smiled again, laid the case across his knees, and looked straight at Ricky. For some reason he talked to her, as if she, above all others, must be firmly convinced of the importance of his mission. It's a very queer story, Miss Ralestone, a very queer, said the mariner to the wedding guest. Holmes snapped his fingers at Satan, who contemptuously ignored him. Or am I thinking of the whiting who talked to the snail? Perhaps I'd better begin at the beginning, continued Creighton, frowning at Holmes, who refused to be so suppressed. Why be so dramatic about it, old man? It's very simple, Miss Ricky. Creighton has lost an author, and he wants you to help find him. When Ricky's eyes involuntarily swept about the room, Val joined in the laughter. No, it isn't as easy as all that, I'm afraid. Creighton had lost his nervous shyness, but what Holmes says is true. I have lost an author, and do hope that you can help me locate the missing gentleman, or lady. Two months ago, an agent sent a manuscript to our office for reading. It wasn't complete, but he thought it was well worth our attention. It was. Although there were only five chapters finished, the rest being but synopsis and elaborated scenes, we knew that we had something, something big. We delayed reporting upon it until Mr. Brewster, our senior partner, returned from Europe. Mr. Brewster has the final decision on all manuscripts. He was as well pleased with this offering as we were. Frankly, we saw possibilities of another great success, such as those two long historical novels which have been so popular during the past few years. Queerly enough, the author's name was not upon the papers sent us by the agent. That is, his proper name. There was a pen name. And when we applied to Mr. Lever, the agent, we received a most unpleasant shock. The author's real name, which had been given in the covering letter mailed with the manuscript to Mr. Lever, had most strangely disappeared due to some carelessness in his office. Now we have an extremely promising book, and no author. What I can't understand, cut in Holmes, is the modesty of the author. Why hasn't he written to Lever? That is the most unfortunate part of the whole affair. 
Mr. Creighton shook his head. Lever recalled that the chap had said in the letter that if Lever found the manuscript unsaleable, he should destroy it, as the writer was moving about and had no permanent address. The fellow added that if he didn't hear from Lever, he would assume that it was not acceptable. Lever wrote to the address given in the letter to acknowledge receipt, but that was all. Mysterious, Val commented, interested in spite of himself. Just so. Lever deduced from the tone of the letter that the writer was very uncertain of his own powers and hesitated to submit his manuscript. And yet what we have is a very fine piece of work, far beyond the ability of the average beginner. The author must have written other things. The novel is historical, with a New Orleans setting. Its treatment is so detailed that only one who had lived here or had close connections with this country could have produced it. Mr. Brewster, knowing that I was about to travel south, asked me to see if I could discover a missing author through his material. So far I have failed. Our man is unknown to any of the writers in the city or to any of those interested in literary matters. Yet he knows New Orleans and its history as few do today, except those of old family who have been born and bred here. Dr. Hanley Richardson of Tulane University has assured me that much of the material used is authentic historically correct to the last detail. And it was Dr. Richardson who suggested that several of the scenes must have actually occurred, becoming with the passing of time part of the tradition of some aristocratic family. The period of the story is that time of transition when Louisiana passed from Spain to France and then under the control of the United States. It covers the years immediately preceding the Battle of New Orleans. Unfortunately, those were years of disturbance and change, events which might have been the talk of the town and so have found description in gossipy memoirs were swallowed by happenings of national importance. It is, I believe, in intimate family records only that I can find the clue I seek. Which scenes? Ricky's eyes shone in the firelight. Are those Dr. Richardson believes real? Well, he was very certain that the duel of the twin brothers must have occurred. Why, Mr. Railstone? He interrupted himself as the stick Val was about to place on the fire, fell from his hands and rolled across the floor. Mr. Railstone, what is the matter? Across his shoulder, Ricky signaled her brother. And above her head, Val saw Holmes' eyes narrow shrewdly. Nothing. I'm sorry I was so clumsy. Val stooped hurriedly to hide his confusion. A duel between twin brothers? Ricky twisted one of the buttons which marched down the front of her sport dress. That sounds exciting. They fought at midnight. Creighton was enthralled by the story he was telling, and one was left for dead. The scene is handled with restraint, and yet you think that the writer had been an eyewitness. Now if such a thing ever did happen, there would have been a certain amount of talk afterwards. Charity nodded. The slaves would have spread the news, she agreed, and the person who found the wounded twin. Val kept his eyes upon the hearthstone. There was no stain there, but his vivid imagination painted the grey as red as it had been that cold night when the slave woman had come to find her master lying there, his brother's sword across his body. Someone had used the story of the missing railstone. But who today knew that story except themselves, Charity, Lefleur, and some of the Negroes? And you think that some mention of such an event might be found in the papers of the family concerned? asked Ricky. She was leaning forward in her chair, her lips parted eagerly. Or in those of some other family covering the same period, Creighton added. I realize that this is an impertinence on my part, but I wonder if such mention might not be found among the records of your own house. 
From what I have seen and heard, your family was very prominent in the city affairs of that time. Ricky stood up. There's no need to ask, Mr. Creighton. My brother and I will be most willing to help you. Unfortunately, Rupert is very much immersed in a business matter just now, but Val and I will go through the papers we have. Val choked down the protest that was on his lips just in time to nod agreement. For some reason, Ricky wanted to keep the secret. Very well, he would play her game. At least he would, until he knew what lay behind her desire for silence. That is most kind. Creighton was beaming down upon both of them. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your cooperation in this matter. Not at all, answered Ricky, with that deceptive softness in her voice which masked her rising temper. We are only too grateful to be allowed to share a secret. And then her brother guessed that she did not mean Creighton's secret, but some other. She crossed the room and rang the bell for Letty Lou to bring coffee. Something triumphant in her step added to Val's suspicion. Like the Englishman of Kipling's poem, Ricky was most to be feared when she grew polite. He turned in time to see her wink at Charity. Rupert came in just then, wet and thoroughly out of sorts, full of the evidences he had discovered on railstone lands bordering the swamp that strangers had been camping there. Their guests all stayed to supper, lingering long about the table to discuss Rupert's find, so that Val did not get a chance to be alone with Ricky to demand an explanation. And for some reason, she seemed to be adroitly avoiding him. He did have her almost cornered in the upper hall when Letty Lou came up behind him and plucked at his sleeve. Mr. Val, she said, that Jeems boy done want to see you all. Bother Jeems, Val exploded, his eyes on Ricky's back. But he stepped into the bedroom where the swamper was still imprisoned by Lucy's orders. The boy was propped up on his pillows, looking out of the window. His body was tense. At the sound of Val's step, he turned his bandaged head. Can't you get me out of here, he demanded. Why? The water's up. His eyes were upon the water-filled darkness of the garden. But that's all right, the other assured him. Sam says that it won't reach the top of the levee. At the worst, only the lower part of the garden will be flooded. Jeems glanced at Val over his shoulder, and then without a word, he edged toward the side of the bed and tried to stand. But with a muffled gasp, he sank back again, pale and weak. Awkwardly, Val forced him back against his pillows. It's all right, he assured him again. But in answer, the swamper shook his head violently. It ain't all right in the swamp. In a flash, Val caught his meaning. Swampers lived on houseboats for the most part, and the boats will outride all but unusual floods. But Jeems' cabin was built on land, land none too stable even in dry weather. The swamp boy touched Val's hand. It ain't safe. Two of them piles is rotted. If the water gets that far, they'll go. You mean the piles holding up your cabin platform? Val asked. He nodded. For a second, Val caught a glimpse of forlorn loneliness beneath the sullen mask Jeems habitually wore. But there's nothing you can do now. It ain't the cabin. I gotta get the chest. The one in the cabin? His black eyes were fixed upon Val's, and then they swerved and rested upon the wall behind the young railstone. I gotta get the chest, he repeated simply. And Val knew that he would. He would get out of bed and go into the swamp after that treasure of his which left only one thing for Val to do. I'll get the chest, Jeems. Let me have your key to the cabin. I'll take the outboard motor and be back before I'm missed. You don't know the swamp. I know how to find the cabin. Where's the key? In there. He pointed to the high boy. Val's fingers closed about the bit of metal. 
Mister, Jeems straightened. I won't forget this. Val glanced towards the downpour without. Neither will I, in all probability, he said dryly as he went out. It had been on just such a night as this that the missing railstone had gone out into the gloom. But he was coming back again, Val reminded himself hurriedly. Of course he was. With a shake, he pulled on his trench coat and slipped out the front door unseen. End of chapter 13 Recording by Gabriel Glenn